Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and folks on today's show, we are pleased to have our interview with David C. Baker. How's it going, Ron? It's going good, Ed. This has been a weird week, but uh, I'm really looking forward to our conversation with David. Absolutely. It has been a weird week. I'll, we'll perhaps get into that on our bonus episode later, but let's let's get to our guest right away. David C. Baker was born in Michigan, but lived in Guatemala with a tribe of Mayans until he was 18 years old. He spent six years in graduate school, earning advanced degrees in ancient languages and theology, but wishes he had a degree in anthropology. He's an author, speaker, and advisor to entrepreneurial experts, and he has owned a marketing communications firm for six years and then started a management consulting firm focused on helping entrepreneurial experts make their business decisions through his writing, speaking, and advising. He's the author of three rock bench titles, Managing Right for the First Time, Financial Management of Marketing Firm, and The Business of Expertise. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, David C. Baker. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. I'm, um, I know so many of your previous guests, so I'm excited to be able to correct all the misinformation they've shared with you. Um, but actually, I, I love listening to the podcast, so it's really great to be here. Thank you so much. Well, we're happy to have you. So my first question is, Mayans, fascinating. Talk to me. Yeah, I know. That's always the first question. Like, it sounds like you were raised with wolves or something. <laughs> My parents were medical missionaries, and so dad did dental work, and mom was a nurse. And so they sent us, the mission they worked with sent us to this little village called San Miguel Acatan. No electricity, no running water, no stores, hardly any roads. So I was six when we first went there, and that's where I lived until I was 18 and came to the U.S. for the first time as an adult. And it was a wonderful life. I, I mean, even then I felt like it. And now looking back on it, I, I love the fact that I had that opportunity. Which, of course, probably led to your then getting advanced degrees in, in ancient languages and theology as part of the tie-in. I could see that, that where that would give you a push in that direction. But then you do say in one of the bios that I read, and I, and I worked it into the bio, that you preferred you would have made, had a degree in anthropology. And I think you probably know Roy Sutherland has called marketing the modern equivalent of anthropology in the current day, where basically anthrop marketers are anthropologists on the current set of human beings that are around. So why, why did you want anthropology after all that? I think uh, it, it was partly that I wanted anthropology because it was so interesting to me to study people and how they think and where they come from and where they lived and so on. But it was also a statement against theology in the sense that I was intending to teach language, ancient languages, and that was the way to learn them. And halfway through that graduate program, I discovered that it was probably not for me. I went ahead and finished it. But the whole language and anthropology is the most fascinating thing to me. And I, maybe it's because like when I first learned my next language besides English, I was just dropped into a kindergarten 
and it wasn't traumatic at all. And I've just loved seeing the world through other languages. You can see it through photography, through music. I love seeing it through language as well. And and that whole linguistic approach of of the history of words and what they mean and how they adapt. And then as it relates to people, it's just so fascinating to me. I, I, I've landed on this particular career, but I've never felt like this is the career for me. I, I think most of us feel like, okay, it could have been six or seven of these. It just happens to be this. And if I were going to do it all over again, it would be an anthropologist. Which leads me to this next question. I'm really curious as to your your thoughts on this. And this is a, kind of a running theme, a running question that Ron and I have bounced back and forth for quite some time. Um, the word fair, and it, we, we often use in the business context of a fair price, mm. let's say. Uh, fair is an Anglo-Saxon word. It only exists in, in Anglo-Saxon type languages. Because if you translate, say, fair to Spanish or French, it gets translated as just. And then if you translate it, if you translate that word back to English, you would never translate it back to fair. You would translate it as just, right? That would, right, that would right. be the, the the word that you would use. And it's amazing to me how the concept of fair, which the opposite, by the way, in the original word is foul. And we would never say, well, that was a foul price. Right. right. <laughs> um, and so in your in your experience with understanding languages, is it's amazing to me how languages have concepts like that that the concept doesn't even translate one to the other. Oh, I know it. As I'm talking with somebody, there are times when I'll think, oh, I cannot, that, I can't think of the right English word, but I can think of the perfect word in, and then I'll think of it in some other language as well. That also reminds me of something that was really strange growing up in that, so the language wasn't written down, it was Kanhobal, it was a, there were only 20,000 people in the world that spoke it. And the odd thing about it was that there were seven different numerical systems. So you had a way to count from one to 20 if you were talking about an animal, but it was different if you were talking about people. And so you dig into that stuff and you discover how the way people use language impacts. It comes from how they understand the bigger world around them, right? I'm anxious to learn and talk more about this whole pricing things with you folks because my podcast partner, Blair Inns, talks about fair and pricing, and he's learned a lot from you folks about that as well. And I'm still, I am still on the fence about some of that stuff. I'll just be honest with you. And so the notion of fair, like in one, one sense, I can say, okay, I know exactly what an unfair price would be. And then other times I think, oh, no, I really understand what fair means. I, if somebody had charged me less than this, I would have thought it was unfair because I wanted to pay this, right? It's, it's, there's so much in there that we could unpack. Yeah, there is, and that's what I wanted wanted to to lead to and ask you about this because I think there's there there is an uh, an, an analogy to business in that these di different areas of expertise, and of course in your book, have different languages in a sense that they're used, and some of them don't translate well one to the other. So I think there is there is a language of marketing, a language of sales, a language of finance, and oftentimes I think we're often talking past each other linguistically, even though we're talking the same. English, it's a different concepts come into our mind when we talk about things like price, like cost, like value. It, th they sometimes mean different things to different people when you say them. Right, they do. And they could mean something different to the exact same people if you talk to them on a Monday versus a Friday based on what's happened to them during that day or something like that. I find the whole, here's an example. So 
I know that I should use more value-based thinking in the way I conduct my own consulting practice, but I don't want to take the time because it's inefficient, even though I could make a lot more money if I uh, took a more thoughtful approach to that. So in some sense, pricing is about how much money you make. In other senses, pricing is about how efficient you want to be. And it's like we're coming at these things from such different perspectives. It's interesting to me how we can, uh, even if we know we know the other person we're talking with, there's no mystery there, but we're using a particular term and it means something different. We're a little sloppier around language nowadays than I think we ever have been in the history of mankind, which seems a little odd to me, but I think it's true. Yeah, well, I think it was Plato. All all wisdom begins with the definition of of words, right? If we 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 can't we can't build wisdom unless we agree on what some term means. And I think oftentimes a lot of people are talking past one another when we do see it, say things like price, value, the, 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 specifically those words in business. So curious as to as to to when you say that. So when you hear value value based pricing, what does that mean to you? Why is that Why is that a a, a struggle for you? I react to it first not as a practitioner or as an expert. I tend to react to that first as somebody who's on the receiving end of a value-based uh, conversation. And mm -hmm. I think the negative reaction I have as simply a consumer as not as an expert is that I've experienced very few people taking the right approach to that. Most of the time I feel like I'm being manipulated instead of having a, an adult conversation about something that is shouldn't be off limits we should talk about that and so part of what's happening in my mind is that i haven't i haven't experienced many great examples of value-based conversations and so until that happens more i think my mind doesn't open up the way it probably should blair and i talk about this a lot because he's a big advocate of that and I haven't seen many great examples of it, and so I'm still trying to get my arms around it, right? In fact, like even what does expertise mean? I, somebody asked me that the other day, and I was like, uh, well, I should know the answer to that. I wrote a book about it, but give me just a minute. Let's take a break right now, and then I'll get Let's back to you. <laughs> So, yeah, no, it, sometimes it, and that's what I think Peter Drucker was great at asking some of those very basic questions that it w that you would think, OK, well, what's the what's the purpose of your business? But sell what your customers buy. Well, duh, no kidding, Peter. But it's a <laughs> it's a, it's amazing how many people don't actually sell what their customers buy. It's really quite right. incredible. Right, right. <laughs> so but I want to suggest I've got just a few minutes with you. So to, to pick on this and, and, and this this value conversation, I agree with you that 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 oftentimes people who have espoused some of the, the concepts that Ron and I talk about have done it and come about it more from a manipulative standpoint. I, I will not, not deny that, stamp, that standpoint at all, which is why I always go back to the work of Mahan Khalsa and his book, because he, to me, wrote really the definitive book on the value conversation, which is let's get real or let's not play. Mm -hmm. And, the, and the, the whole concept is exactly what you said. We're going to have a real authentic conversation. And I am going on a value quest with you in in this conversation to try to find out if there's enough there there as you know the politicians once said to see if it's worth us doing business at all and i'll be the first one to say 
I don't think we should do anything with you. Right, right. And one of the one of the best parts about value-based conversations to me is that it forces me to listen really carefully to what's happening before I start to offer um, solutions and even price them, which would be even worse. It forces me to listen more as an expert rather than just uh, diagnose too quickly without the right information, right? Now, whether that carries over into the right pricing is another question, but I, I love elements of value-based thinking, but I haven't experienced too many great examples of it on the receiving end. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that, that's that that that's unfortunate because I think one of the things that I found is that when people are really good at the value conversation, you do have that experience of being well listened to. That's one of the things that that people will say. And I will agree. I think uh, Margaret Wheatley, a previous guest on this show, one of one of her books, which is on great questions about asking great questions, she does ask that ex that, that exact question. When was the last time you experienced good listening? Mm, right, right. And, and that's well, it's a very challenging. Where you felt like the person who was selling you something didn't come into it with any motive to sell to you. They wanted to understand your situation really well. And you you trusted them to say that it wasn't a fit if it wasn't, right? And you all of a sudden on the receiving end of that, you just completely relax and you trust the person. I have experienced that and it's just a great feeling. Yeah, it really is, and it and it and it changes the way I think we, we we go about doing our business on a regular basis. So, well, look at this. We're up against our first break already. Want to remind folks that they can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is the Soul of Enterprise Patreon channel, patreon.com slash tsoe, which is sponsored by Ninety Minds. If you need a mind, you can get one at ninetyminds.com. But right now, a word from our sponsor. sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. 
Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with David Baker, and he's the author of The Business of Expertise, How Entrepreneurial Experts Convert Insight to Impact Plus Wealth. Uh, published in 2017, David, this was a great book. I really got a lot out of it. I love how you talk about positioning and all of that. But on the wealth plus making an impact in your subtitle, I just want to ask you about this from a knowledge worker perspective. When like you work, look at doctors or lawyers or even advertising folks, um, they joined the profession or the industry because for some reason they wanted to help people. They wanted to make an impact, whatever. And then they get in there and they spend half their time doing paperwork. Like, you, you know, doctors feel like they're overwhelmed with too many patients and they just, they don't burn out. They rust out. Mm. What's your reaction to that? I, I, I certainly see that a lot. And to me, in part, it comes from misunderstanding the growth equation. So not understanding the implications of being a larger firm. And to me, there are pros and cons of being bigger or being smaller. But the main question I think we need to answer to ourselves about that is what do you personally want to do? Do you enjoy being that managing director kind of person that's making a lot of those decisions that you just described? Or do you like to be more the hands-on person that's in the direct knowledge transfer business? And how you answer that question should determine how big your firm should be. But here we are, especially in the U.S., in a culture that worships growth. And so if you aren't growing then apparently you're failing. And I think that is so wrong. I mean, you need to grow in curiosity and knowledge and you should be making lots of money. But I don't think there's there should be any stigma in shaping a business around something so that you don't sit there and are forced to do some things because the business requires of them of you, but all of a sudden you don't want, it's, it's almost like the tail wagging the dog and the business needs to work for you and not you for the business. You don't wanna wake up some morning feeling like you just keep shoveling coal into the machine and you're not in charge anymore. And, and that's what translates into roles where they just rust out as you say, I think. Yeah, we have a saying around here, growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of a cancer cell, not of a profitable, <laughs> sustainable business. And I love how you say it's not about revenue or growth. It's about impact. Um, you also wrote this, and I, I, I really want you to explain this. Um, expertise or insight is based on focus, which is based on positioning. Now, I'm going to talk, I'm going to ask you later about vertical and horizontal, but just unpack that expertise insight is based on focus which is based on positioning i think the reason that i believe that now the reason that's true now is largely because of the way the world has gotten so much smaller so the geographic boundaries have basically disappeared except for services that by definition need to be delivered in person things like healthcare, uh, electricity um, and so on. So, but the rest of the world, and this largely happened in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, when the world was Googleized. So now all of a sudden, I don't have to just look for customers near me. I can look out there. But the reverse of that is that all of those competitors out there can now look for clients around me. And so the world almost overnight became way too big to completely be an expert around all of it. That forced me, if I was going to really, really um, succeed, I needed to pick something that I could master. That meant that I needed to focus on something. 
And when I focus on something, that allows me to see similar situations over and over. And that, in turn, allows me to see the patterns in there, sort of like in that movie, uh, A Beautiful Mind, where the code is running down the wall and nobody else can see the patterns except for John. And that's how I think about it. I wish it wasn't that way because the world is so interesting. I don't want to limit myself to that. And if that's the only part that, that somebody would understand, it's dangerous because I think in my personal life, I need to be completely broad and not focused at all so that I put that deep knowledge into a broader context that doesn't lose its role in society. But that's how I understand it. It's just that the world around us has changed and I just simply can't be an expert in as many things as I thought I could in the past. Right. And, and I love that because on the positioning end of it, it also uh, gives you the ability to say no easier. And, and I love when you say your only real control is to withhold your expertise. Right. Right. I mean, it, he it, who says no has the power. Yeah. And it sounds so cruel to say your only power is to withhold your expertise because immediately you're thinking of like somebody who could do CPR and decides not to do it. <laughs> and th that's not what we're talking about. It's more that it's about a re it's sort of a replacement theory. So if somebody is wanting to work with me, and if they have lots of similar options in their minds, then I have no pricing power in that scenario. If I decide to withhold my expertise and it takes them a long time to find a suitable substitute for my expertise, then all of a sudden I have some power. And the only way that that equation works is if I have some sort of expertise that is not readily available. Now, it should be available to some extent. I shouldn't be the only person that could do it, but I have to have a manageable number of competitors in order to have any power in that equation. And the biggest mistake that I think we make in this service business, expertise business, is, th is experts thinking they're in the service business, and they're not. There's not a product business and a service business. There's a product business, a service business, and an expertise business. And if you think that you're in the service business, then you will keep you'll, you'll be taking orders from your clients. You'll be you'll be like a waiter saying, what do you want? What do you want? And that's not what we're talking about in the expertise business. You are often delivering news that is not as welcome as a great waiter's news would be delivering. Yeah, I mean, it, there's nothing more liberating than being able and willing to say no. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I just said yes, but I should have said no to this. I should have just disagreed with you. <laughs> but we learn that so late, or a lot of us do. Right. I wish I would have known that in my twenties. We have to. It's almost different. Like you don't really get to that first level of success unless you say yes a lot. But then you have to switch, right? You can't say no the whole time, or you won't ever have any opportunities, right? But there is a certain point where you have to quit saying yes, and you start saying no, and you test the water. It's like, oh, my world just it didn't disappear when I said no. Maybe I'll try that a little bit more forcefully next time, right? Right. My, my, by the way, David, my favorite way to say no is tell somebody I'd love to, but I don't want to. <laughs> and you'll get a really weird look and they'll have to process that for a minute. But it's a great, it's a very nice way to say no. Um, I, I was very great conversation you were having with Ed about pricing. And you say pricing to you as a leading indicator, as a consultant, you like to go in, take a look at their pricing. That gives you a sense of their confidence level. You know, do they offer free consultations? All, you have all of these different things that you look at. Um, why do you think so many firms have a problem with pricing? 
I think it's because they don't have enough deal flow and they're afraid that if they're too transparent or confident in their pricing that they just won't have enough opportunity. And it's this strange sensation that all these very, very capable experts that have not only gone to school and they've been in the trenches to learn all of this, they come at it from a point of scarcity, which is so silly when you step back and they somehow think that if I don't get this exactly right, I'm going to starve. It's also from a perspective of thinking that the whole selling and marketing process is very fragile. They're afraid that if they say the wrong thing, that somehow this deal will go away and then they'll be sitting there with nothing to do. My perspective is not that way at all. I take the opposite perspective and I think that marketing and selling is more, I, I think of it more as a whack-a-mole approach. So when it looks like this is real opportunity for me, I'll just gently knock it on the head. And if it pops back up again, it's real. You don't have to just tiptoe around all of this stuff. I think that real experts and real clients will find each other and there can be some bumps in the road and we don't have to be worried too much about saying the wrong thing. We just have to have a perspective that I've got something to offer. I think it's probably worth this. If you don't agree, that's completely fine. Like there's lots of other people you can work with. Uh, my own personal feeling on this is that I would rather starve than compromise on that. I'm, I've faced that in my own mind. I, if, if I go out of business because I don't have enough business, then I'm okay with that. I, I'm more okay with that than somehow constantly compromising because of fear that I'll not have enough work to do. Right. Right. I'd rather have no business than bad business. Right. Or where I have to compromise my principles. I love the way you see, you know, we're big fans of Dr. House or I am and second law of medicine, which is prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. Right. And you say, and I love this and I'm stealing this by the way, if you don't diagnose or even prescribe, you're just the pharmacy. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love that. And it, and it kind of leads to, if you kind of blow that up and go even higher, we have a saying that, you know, you say, don't confuse expertise with implementation. I have a saying, good ideas are everywhere and they're always, uh, you know, good ideas are more valuable than the mere execution of them. Mm -hmm. In other words, to prescribe with the wrong diagnosis, there's no good way to implement a bad idea. Right. I don't right. think good ideas are everywhere. Mm. I yeah. think they're rare. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't get the remake of Dukes of Hazard and Bewitched and all this crap. <laughs> I mean, all these sequels. Um, but I just wanted your reaction to that. Yeah, I think it's true. I, I, it's almost like a false choice. You know, you you really need the right idea and then it needs to be implemented well. Uh, the choice about whether you want to do implementation, like in an expertise environment, I I want to stay away from a lot of implementation just because I think it's harder to get clients to pay any sort of premium for implementation. They will if they want one throat to choke, as I say, where they just don't want fight between the idea and the implementation, or maybe it's just really convenient for them. But in general, and I also want to take the approach, I want to be the liberating army. I want to drop in. I want to, I want to free this nation to cheers. I don't want to be the occupying army that starts to eat their crops and date their daughters and live in their homes, right? So an implementation requires you to stick around so long that they get too familiar with you and you're not an expert anymore.
I love that. I love how you, you have the strategy room and the implementation room and the strategy room should slowly encroach uh, and grow bigger over because, and I learned this from economists. I know it's a very counterintuitive idea, but countries that come up with better ideas and more ideas are, have a higher standard of living than those countries that merely execute on those ideas. Right. So right. I'd rather be in the country that comes up with the concept of the iPhone rather than the country that assembles it. Right, right. Very specifically. <laughs> um, the other thing, and I love this, and I've only got about a minute, but uh, maybe Ed can get into this. You say there's a temptation to match capacity to opportunity, right. which is kind of that whole growth for the sake of growth. You say the right size capacity is slightly smaller than the amount of opportunity within reach. That's brilliant, by the way. I love that. Well, people ask me, what's the right size of a firm? And kind of that's my smart aleck answer. It's like, well, it's always a little bit smaller than your opportunity. And the gap between those two represents your ability to say no. If you feel compelled to always match the capacity to the opportunity, then you just can never turn anything down because now you're feeding a machine. And if you never have spare capacity, not only can't you get you know better opportunities or, or drive more opportunities for existing customers, but you're going to rust out your people. Right. If you put them on this treadmill, especially knowledge workers. Right. And you need to reserve time for yourself to be thinking about creating future value and and not stuff doing doing everything for a specific client. You need to be thinking about your firm, too. And you can't do that if you're always working for clients. Awesome. Well, David, this has been great. Uh, folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. As Ed said, you can go out and become a Patreon member at patreon.com slash TSOE. And at a certain tier, you can get a shout out, on the, shout out on the show like Mark Gandy has. Check out cfobookshelf.com, which is the podcast hosted by Mark Gandy. I just did a show with him on Monday. It's going to probably drop in another week or so. Really excited about it. It's my second appearance. So thank you, Mark. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired.
You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back with the author of The Business of Expertise, David C. Baker. And David, would you walk us through a typical day for you? <laughs> and if you don't don't get the reference there, that is that is the opening line of the two bobs to, uh, to in the in the in the classic scene, the movie Office Space. So I want to want to to talk talk to me a little bit about the two bobs podcast, and which oh. I, I assume is based on that, that great scene in that movie. It is, yeah. And oh my gosh, the more every every time I think we've been doing it for four four and a half years now, and and I I get more excited about the fact that we named it after that movie now if you if you don't get that then then you'll go to the web page and you'll see a red stapler and and then if you don't get that then i have no hope for you but there, <laughs> like of all the of all the movies like it's a terrible script it's terrible acting it never it's just, it's an underground cult sort of movie but it's got so many lines so many great lines in it doesn't it? it's like uh blair used one the other day it's like i think i'm gonna quit my job he says well what are you going to do to pay your bills? I said, I'm just not going to pay those either. And, um, <laughs> well, what are you going to, well, I don't know. I just don't enjoy paying them. So I know it's just, it's like the stuff we think, but we don't say it's a great, it's great. That's why we named it. We're the two Bobs in, in that show. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And you know, the, I probably the only more famous scene than that is the PC load letter when they go, they, they take the baseball bat to the printer. That yeah, is the, right, the, right. <laughs> <laughs> kind, of, kind of the quiz shot in North Texas, by the way, just a little, little, little a lot of those interiors were, were shot in North Texas, oh, but, uh, but but David, back back to the book. Um, so I'm going to quote from from the book here, and this I think alludes to the conversation that you were having earlier with Ron. You said, "If I could reach inside my unconfident clients and raise their confidence level, we would move on and solve the next challenge for them." Truth be told, I often thought more highly of their abilities than they did themselves. Mm-hmm. Why do so many professional organizations actually suffer from, as crazy as this seems, self-esteem issues? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's it's sort sort of another phrase for imposter syndrome, right? And and you see it show up in so many ways. You get like in the early days of an expert's career, they tend to over deliver all the time it's like it's a 120 page report and then 10 years later they're delivering more value with a six page report and they undercharge or they don't enforce scope or whatever it is and and all of a sudden and i see those situations and it's so obvious to me as an outsider that that's true and of course i i experience the same thing that I, I, I just say to them, it's like, why are you charging so little? I, I read through the whole proposal and then I got to the last thing in there and the price. And I was like, what that I, I would have guessed three times that much. And, and yet it doesn't make an impact on them. And th- they care more what their marketplace thinks than what I think. And so my, um, if I could just reach down and be their mom and say, you're really good. You know, the mom who believes in you in spite of all the evidence, I could fix that, right? But I can't. So what I do instead is I give them more opportunity because 
if they get repeated messages from the marketplace that they're worth what they're charging, slowly their perception of their abilities catches up to what the marketplace thinks. And I wish I, this if I were an anthropologist or a sociologist, I'd probably understand this more, but it is an intriguing thing that we, but this is something that we do cure ourselves with success in the marketplace. We we get tired of all the extra work we're doing and we just we're too busy so we just do an 80-page report and nobody notices and it's like, "Oh, maybe I'll try a 60-page report, right?" It's just odd. Mhm. Yeah, well, as one of uh, the colleagues at Verisage once said when he was shifting his last customer over from b- billing by the hour to to fixed price agreement, he he said to him, "I'm too old and talented." To continue to bill you by the hour, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, uh, and and I think that's part of it. But I also do think that it relates back to the conversation we were having earlier, which is the professional tends to to focus on. Well, it only took me fifteen minutes. Mm-hmm. Reality is, no, it took you your whole lifetime to get to that fifteen minutes. Right, and that and you're not selling expertise. And I was so much in agreement with what you were saying about them thinking that they are they are not service workers man that's one thing i wish i could beat out of them that you are in a service firm you're in a knowledge firm or what we like to call access to or transfer of knowledge that's what you're really selling right so for me it kind of comes down to thinking i'm i'm I've got a client problem and it's challenging and I've done a lot of work in this space but i can't figure it out and i'm in the shower and in 45 seconds i have the solution are you telling me that that's worth 45 seconds of some hourly rate? Like that's such a ridiculous notion, right? And so that that example that everybody I think can relate to, it starts to open up your mind to the fact that uh, maybe this hourly thing isn't right, you know? And I, I, I here's a is a confession. So the first time I had a possible client, they were in. I was living in Northern Indiana, and they were in Chicago. And I, I got a new set of clothes, and I tried to park my really shitty Impala so they couldn't see it. And I walk into the place, <laughs> and they they said, uh, "What do you call the program you do?" And I said, uh, "I didn't have a name for it, but I said total business review. Just made it up on the spot." And they said, "Oh, that sounds really interesting." And the one question they never asked is, "Have you ever done this for anybody?" Because that would have been an embarrassing answer, and I hadn't. And they said, well, what does that cost? And I just froze. Like, I hadn't even thought about that. I didn't think I needed to be prepared with that because I didn't think they were going to hire me. And I said, I forget the number, but I said something like $15,376. And, like, afterwards, I'm thinking, why did I use that number? Like, if I had been confident, I would have said 16000 right? But somehow I felt like I had to justify every dollar. And that <laughs> made it sound like it came out of a spreadsheet that they couldn't disagree with and that's what happens with experts where we just we we, we're our own enemy it's really not the clients that are problem if you have a qualified client they're not questioning your value it's you're the problem that's that's usually where it comes from alan weiss tells a story about this this whole confidence thing where he was a junior implementer curiously for a, a a a a larger consulting firm and the guy would always after he would give the price out to this bank manager whoever they were pitching to he would who put a cigar in his mouth and one day alan weiss uh screwed up the courage as he said and asked him so bernie i think the guy said what's with the cigar he goes i need the cigar because if i don't put the cigar in i start to giggle after <laughs> the price <laughs> That's great. That's great. <laughs> so um, anyway, but but uh, we've only got about four minutes left, and you started down this conversation with Ron, and it, it, I thought it was really interesting. You have 
you you talk about the 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 six different things that uh, about positioning right the the, the chapters and five are in one chapter and then you dedicate an entire chapter chapter 10 to how positioning is built on your expertise and not your implementation you started to talk a little bit about that with ron unpack that with the last four minutes or so that we have left to talk here sure so Let's say that we'll identify the implementation as a designer, for instance, and um, and then the, the the first room is a strategy. You could envision doing really great strategy and then giving a designer who didn't know anything about the particular client you're working with, giving them the right directions. And as long as they had the right guidance, then the design would be more than adequate. It would be great. That illustrates the fact that the person doing the implementation, as long as they're guided by the right strategy, doesn't need to be as specialized as the strategist does. So if that's the case, then why are we building all of our positioning on both the strategy and the implementation? So in in the field that I address, why are we saying that the that we should pay more, that a client should pay more for the coding of something when whoever the, then when the software engineer doesn't necessarily have to understand this particular tech product or whatever it is. So the whole point is that even though you might do strategy and implementation, the positioning decision is built on the strategy. That's where the differentiation is. That doesn't mean that you don't necessarily want to offer implementation to your clients, but the only excess value attached to that implementation is the fact that it's tied to the strategy. So the way I like to think of it nowadays is because this is more and more common, imagine that you're working with a client that has all the capacity, all the capability to do the implementation work and all they want is strategy. They have all the implementation. You're just simply there to guide their internal in-house department to do that. Could you imagine a very successful business where you're not doing any implementation, but you're just guiding other implementers? If that's the case, then you understand the power of your expertise. You might still decide to offer implementation, but don't be under the mistaken impression that you can get a lot of money for that implementation. I, you know, I... I'm going to pay a lot of money to the designer of my home, not necessarily the person who hangs the drywall. Whoever hangs the drywall, that's largely interchangeable, but the design, the strategy side of it is not. So I just want people to draw a distinction and understand that you've got to, when you're, when you're trying to build um, a, an argument for expertise and positioning, those two things are attached and the implementation is largely interchangeable. And so if you're not doing a lot of strategy, then you're not going to get a pricing premium just for implementation. No, that's so great. And and uh, our friend Tim Williams, who I know you know, uh, you know, talks about the difference between uh, logic work and magic work. And and I think that very similar to what you're talking about. He's right. like, charge a lot for the, the magic work. And you can even quote, give away the logic work, the stuff that's got to be done no matter what, uh, that, say that that's free. I mean, it's not, but it, it, the, because the value really is on that top magic work. And the crazy thing is that so many of the way professional knowledge workers do this is they give away the strategy work because they want to impress the prospect. And then if the prospect says yes, then they get hired to do all this implementation work, which 
should not have any great value attached to it. It's just a crazy way to think. That's why I want them to envision that all of the implementation is going to be done for the client. That allows them to say, listen, if I don't price this strategy work right, I'm not going to make much money at all. It puts the right pressure on the right things. That's right. None of us wants to be charged $150 an hour to resize a banner ad. That's right. We, we, yeah, we, right. <laughs> we do right. not want that at all. Well, uh, David, this has been great. Ron's going to take you home in the fourth segment, but I just want to thank you for appearing on the show today. We hope you'll come back and maybe talk to us some more. But right now, we want a word from our sponsors and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise well welcome back everybody we're here with david baker the author of the business of expertise and and david uh, we've only got about nine minutes and you could probably use the whole thing and i just want to tell people please 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 read david's book because your discussion on vertical versus horizontal positioning is brilliant and there's a lot in there and firms need to go through every portion of it um but you also say most well-positioned experts have vertical positioning so give me your explanation of how do you explain vertical versus horizontal positioning? Sure. So vertical positioning is tied to a particular industry. The easy way to define that would be the old way of an SIC code, or nowadays it'd be more of an NAICS code. So it would be financial services or healthcare, often a lot more narrow than that even. That would be vertical positioning. Horizontal positioning is more difficult to define 
and there are also several options. So horizontal positioning is tied to either a service offering. So we do investor relations for lots of companies across all kinds of SIC, all kinds of verticals, or it also might be tied to a demographic. So we help you reach college age kids or old people or Hispanics or whatever that is. So horizontal and vertical is kind of where you start. And uh, positioning needs to go beyond one of those, either of those two, but that's where you would start, either horizontal or vertical. And you say that this needs to be reevaluated at, you know, at least every five years or so, maybe 10, ideally. Explain that. It didn't used to be that way, but the world has been changing at a faster pace. And so what, and my co-host Blair talks about coming up with a positioning that is not perfect, but it's perfectible. In other words, you have all the information you're likely to get from a distance, launch it, learn from it. The rest of the information that you'll need to make the perfect positioning won't come until you're out in the marketplace. So you're looking for those little adjustments. And what's particularly interesting about adjustments to positioning is that when they do change, most of the time they get narrower. So you, a positioning decision is made against the background of the information that you have. And as you get more information, you discover that this is a richer niche here that you can go in that direction. And so you're always looking for ways to adjust that. And usually it's even narrower, which would have terrified you at the beginning because you didn't have enough information to make a careful decision. Every once in a while, you'll make a wrong positioning decision entirely, but it doesn't take five years to discover that. You'll figure that one out pretty quickly. Right. I know it's in your contract with Blair to give him a shout out, and I hope we've uh, hope, <laughs> hope we've done more with that. than necessary. It, yeah, I'm a little uh, embarrassed at how much I've talked about him already. Well, one more shout out to Blair. He says positioning is an exercise in irrelevance. Right. Exactly. Explain, it, explain that. Yeah. And if we get that wrong, here's what happens. We're trying to become relevant to as many targets as possible. And so we try, we have all this experience in our background and we, we recognize that we're not going to invent experience. So we, we say, we just acknowledge that whatever positioning decision we make is going to be similar to some work that we've done. So we've list, we list everything that we've ever done. And then we, in our positioning discussion, we try to draw a circle that includes as many of those things as possible because we are afraid we're going to run out of opportunity. That's, that's coming at it from a position of trying to be as relevant as possible. But there's no power in a decision like that because the only power that's there in a, in a positioning discussion is this remote chance that I am not a fit for you and so I don't want to waste your time or your money and I don't want to waste the, waste the opportunity for effectiveness. So every time you narrow this, you are essentially saying, as you, as you shine this spotlight more brightly on the clients where you're a really good fit, you're essentially not shining a light on all of these others that are becoming more irrelevant to you. So the, the most powerful, brave positioning decisions are ones largely of irrelevance because you're, you have a smaller circle of clients that you're relevant to, which by definition means that more and more prospects are going to be irrelevant for your message. And, and I love it too. You have a really good way to explain how when you're in a vertical positioning framework, it's so much easier to find prospects because essentially you can buy a list. Exactly. And, and, and the other thing you said is when people change jobs, 
they usually take you along with them, which is a fantastic point. Right. And that doesn't happen as much if it's a horizontal positioning. So um, absent any other sort of influence, almost every expert, when they're faced with a positioning decision in front of them, they will naturally choose a horizontal positioning because they're, they want all of the variety that comes from working in all of these different industries. They're drawn to that. They're curious people. They love learning new things. They love assimilating data. And so they, they're drawn to horizontal positioning. What keeps most of them from being able to execute on that is they cannot find their clients. So a simple example of that is, okay, we're going to do identity for, for Fortune 1000 clients. It's like, well, so that's a horizontal positioning across all of these verticals. But how do you find those people? By the time you discover that one of them is redoing their identity, the, the, it's already too late. They've already hired a firm, so they have to default to a vertical. Now. I'm not saying you have to buy a list, but if you can't buy a list, then it's probably not going to work. So if your goal is let's work for my, I'm, a, I'm an expert in working with clients that are going through deep disruption. That sounds good on the surface. Can you buy a list of that? I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's some, maybe there's something about their stock price or maybe there's something about turnover that would correlate with being in disruption. But if you can't find a way to identify these people in advance, then it's probably not a great positioning choice. Yeah, that's a fantastic acid test. Can you buy a list? Um, then, then you say this, and I love this too, and I know this kind of goes back to our conversation about growth for the sake of growth, but you say drop the irrational fear that to keep a customer, you have to meet all of their needs. Yeah, it's very, I'm harking back. I just had my heart stopped a little bit. I'm thinking about going to a dance and not wanting to let anybody that I brought to the dance um, d dance with her, right? It's sort of this, oh, I got to, like, I don't want her to experience anybody else because then I'll lose her. It's just this really crazy, it's like, um, insecure experts want to hoard opportunity as opposed to so they, but the best experts value fit more than they value money. And so they, they make decisions that are in their client's best interest. And while it may be in your best interest to take on a client because you're going to, at least short term, you're going to make a lot of money from it. It's not in the client's best interest. And so you are committed ethically to saying when you're not a great fit and there are too many firms out there, too many experts who keep broadening their services all the time because they don't want their clients to experience other experts. And that's just a sign of insecurity. Right. And I also love you said, uh, quit protecting what you learned in the past and learn new things now. I, I have this philosophy that you should give away your intellectual capital. That way, I have to replenish it to keep it the cutting edge. <laughs> right, right, right. It's a, it's a, it's, to me, it's a lagging indicator that your ideals are stale when you start copywriting, copywriting your own jargon. It's also, a, it, it's also this strange perspective that you really think your competitors are, are checking your website every day just to figure out how they should. They don't care about you. Like it's, <laughs> if you're going to charge a lot of money then I think your prospects deserve to know how you think in advance. So you, you've demonstrated your expertise in many ways. That gives them the confidence to pay you a lot of money to help to apply your thinking. But they do have, I think they have a right to understand how you think in advance. And the only way they can figure that out is if you tell them how you think in advance, right? Then you can charge a lot of money. The, 
the best experts are really just like, I'm going to bring the same toolbox to every engagement I have, but I'm going to use a unique combination of tools in working with you, but I'm not likely to discover any big surprises here. What I will discover is your own unique brand of incompetence, right? And that's what I have to surface and try to solve. Excellent. Well, David, thank you so much for appearing on the Soul of Enterprise. We got to bring you back and talk about maybe some of your other books. Ed, what's coming up for next week? Next week, Ron, we are going to talk about a little book that we found called The Little Book of Behavioral Economics, Influences and Irrationalities of the Human World by none other than... Looking forward to it. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy. Sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern. That's noon Pacific. But in the meantime, please feel free to visit us on our website at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. Sustainable success is just around the corner. If you are an entrepreneur, business leader, or anybody looking for their next level of success, tune into Sustainable Success.